I'm Zach Abramowitz, and I am Legally Disrupted. You don't really need any introduction. Well, I mean, you're, you're artificial lawyer. You can call me anything you like. In this inaugural episode of Zach Abramowitz is Legally Disrupted, we sit down for a conversation with Mr. Artificial Lawyer himself, Richard Tromans, founder of ArtificialLawyer.com. Richard has been writing there for the last seven years, since 2016. But this year, he's taking a sabbatical, which we have an opportunity to discuss. We also talk chat GPT, LLMs, and why Richard would like to see the billable hour go away. He also has a chance to tell us about his upcoming conference next week, Legal Innovators California, taking place June 7th through 8th in San Francisco. Make sure to check that out. And now, let's get disrupted. This is a really interesting conversation at both like a macroeconomic industry level, but it's also kind of interesting at a personal level. So for those who, if you follow legal technology, I think you're probably aware that Richard Tromans, who's the, the founder and editor of Artificial Lawyer, took a sabbatical this year. And he's been nice enough to catch up with me now and tell me what he's up to. He's got an important conference coming up that I want to make sure to talk to him about. But as I keep saying, what a time in the world to take, I feel like your sabbatical announcement like may have coincided with the launch of ChatGPT. Like they were very close in space. It was it, actually. Did you plan this cosmically, Richard? No, well, they, they got in touch about a year ago and told me, and they said, you know, you might as well take a sabbatical and come back one of the trough has, has kind of gone and we can get into some meaty stuff. And I said, all right, okay, I'll do that. He said, these LLMs are just going to be hallucinating for the first year anyway. Wait till we clean that up. Largely because I'm promoting the Legal Innovators California Conference. I've been putting out a lot of stuff. June 7th through 8th in San Francisco at the Bespoke, right? Yeah, Bespoke, yeah. Which is a very, very, very nice place actually inside a sort of shopping center. But yeah, <laughs> I mean... The timing, the truth is, is that as I was saying to someone else last week, it, everything feels very deja vu. This feels like 2016 all over again. There are some significant differences. The significant difference is that literally millions and millions of people have already got their hands on this technology and are using it and are getting some value from it. They're also very, very quickly discovering the challenges with it. And then that's bringing huge attention to solving problems. So we're motoring our way through this much, much, much more quickly. I mean, it took and quite a while. Wh wh why do you, why do you use, tw what, I'm, I'm so interested in you. Why do you use 2016 as the, as, as <laughs> well, the sort of comparison? Because, I mean, well, it's obviously this is subjective, but for me, 2016 was a key day. Obviously that's when I launched Artificial Lawyer. But equally, and I think it's probably fair to say that around sort of 2015, 2016 is when this new wave of legal AI companies sort of really came to the public consciousness. Many of them had existed for several years before, you know, like Kira, you know, had, had existed several years before that even had a, had a different yeah. name originally. But there was an explosion of interest. Natural language processing became a real thing in the legal world. There was also really, you know, we forget, our memories are so short, we forget that around 2015, there were stories every day or every week on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about AI. 
every newspaper had a picture of like some kind of android and of iRobot, you know, kind of very sort of shiny looking <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, it was just crazy. I mean, there yeah. were Russians about... I feel like the other image that we get, the sort of standard image for the AI taking over or displacing lawyers, taking over legal or displacing lawyers, like the image that we often get is some kind of minority report, like look where the, with like the multiple screens or the oracles, for some reason that one, that's one that seems to get like reused and sort of versions and iterations of that, those minority report scenes. The key thing is to me, Bruce, I was going to take the sabbatical anyway. Come on, mate. It was, it was delayed because of COVID. I would have probably taken sabbatical after five years rather than almost seven years, but COVID, you know, there was a lot going on. Plus, I, you know, there was just too much happening. So you were talking about London. We were discussing the idea of these cities and sort of the view. And I, I've said this before, that I don't think I could do my job if I weren't close to a tech center. I don't think I could reliably be a source of information on technology and disruption if I didn't live 20 minutes from downtown Tel Aviv. Right. I could do this in San Francisco. I could probably do this in Miami or New York or Austin or London for that matter. But I do feel that there is something in being close to huge influential cities, especially cities with, with lots of tech talent, because yeah, you just, you start to see things earlier. Your entire experience feels like you're like a step ahead. So predicting the next step is almost like natural to being there. So. I wanted to mention this. So London is one of my absolute favorites. And I was in London last year, November for Legal Innovators UK. I think Legal Innovators UK is going to be this year, November 9th. I think I have that right, but we can, but so I'm very excited because I think I'm, I think I'm going to be able to make that one because I have to be in, in England anyway, right around that time. So I'm able to I think kill two birds with, with one ticket. I think it's November 8th and 9th. Yeah. So uh, my son is jumping in a trampoline, an international trampoline competition that is going to be in Birmingham starting, I think, like on the 10th. So the, the times work out perfectly. So I was at your conference last year. I was super impressed with, with the event. It felt like everyone in the room was someone who I wanted to network with and meet with and in some cases was surprised. I didn't know these people already. There was something perfect about the number that you had there. When you go to these very, very, very big conferences, you want to boast that they've got, you know, a thousand people or more. It can be overwhelming. I'm a very social outgoing person. And like when I step onto those exhibit floors, it can be very, very overwhelming, especially if it's not your first time. And there was something that we felt very manageable about the number. So you've got an event June 7th and 8th in San Francisco, uh, Legal Innovators, California, that, and even though you're on sabbatical, you are involved with this conference. So tell us what, to, what should we expect and why should people be signing up for this conference if they're not already? And if they are on their way, what, what should they be expecting to see? Yeah, thanks, Zach. Well, I mean, I think the point about the size is important. The, the reality is it's a medium, medium size conference and the idea is is to bring together real thought leaders people who've really got something to say people who are really doing something 
people who are in innovation or legal ops roles, people who are running really interesting companies, pioneering ALSPs and so forth. And the idea is to bring everybody together and have this sort of like cross-fertilization of ideas. We can learn from each other. We can network. You know, I would imagine that many of the speakers are as excited about networking with the other speakers as I'm sure the audience will be, you know, because there's just such a great bunch of people. And, and that's really the artificial lawyer sort of take on things, which is that, you know, I've never wanted to be like Bloomberg Law, you know, and have like 100,000 readers a week or whatever. That's not, it's never been the intention. The idea is, is to bring together the people who are doing stuff, who have original thoughts and ideas and get them in a room or get them in a magazine, get them in a conference and allow them to share ideas and spark ideas and actors, catalysts and touchstones. I'm not really interested so much in like having one big speaker who's going to sort of dominate and push a line or whatever that is. That's not really what I'm inter interested in. I'm interested in free thinkers, people who will come together and discuss. They may disagree. And, you know, I think a, a little bit of disagreement is a good thing. You know, it's yeah. about debates and intelligence. I, I actually, I saw, I saw something in one of the panels at Legal Innovators UK that I, I can't remember seeing somewhere else. I saw someone change their mind in the middle of the <laughs> panel. And I thought it was such a, it was such a great, sort of symbolic moment of what that entire conference had been like. Again, this was the, the 2022 version, but you had a panel on contract lifecycle management, which it feels like we've totally stopped hearing about since <laughs> yeah, LLMs came out. This is it, right? CLM has lost to LLM for sure. I'm sure, <laughs> you know, I think there's a, there's a conference going on this week. And my guess is that the exhibit floor is probably everyone, everyone, if everyone was a CLM, I guess is everyone now is an LLM, but you know, we, we, we'll get there in a minute. The, the thing that, it, that was interesting about that panel on CLM was there was a question of, should a law firm be involved in a CLM implementation? And I believe it was James May, who was an in-house lawyer at Coca-Cola was on the panel with Grant Hewlett from Gravity Stack, which is part of Reed Smith. And he said, you know, prior to this panel, I think I would have said no. But after hearing the case that Grant had made for why a law firm slash captive ALSP is the perfect party to help you with a contract lifecycle implementation, he said, I'm inclined to sort of take back my initial opinion. And I thought that was just a great kind of microcosm for a day where it felt like people were there to exchange ideas and potentially have their minds changed. Because I think why you want to go to a conference, you want to go to a conference to either confirm that you're right in, in what you're doing, or you want to find someone who convinces you, no, I, I think I maybe had this wrong. And that's why, and that's what I'm learning at this conference that I wouldn't have gotten if I didn't attend. No, totally, totally. And, and, and I, I think another aspect, I mean, I think the, the independent thought, free thinking, dialogue, cross-fertilization is, is key. And just, just to reiterate, so people understand that there's the, the two days, 7th and the 8th, so June yeah. 7th, June 8th in San Francisco. And first day is law firms and ALSPs. The second day is in-house legal ops. And many of the subjects we'll be discussing are similar, but we'll be, we'll be looking at them through a different lens. Because if you know, if you're a provider of services, 
clearly your perspective it will be slightly different to someone who's working in house um and you know that that's another key aspect i mean many conferences it's all legal ops or it's all law firms or it's all about litigation i've always taken the view that if you bring together really smart people and i think if you if you've got a really smart audience and i'm sure we have as we always have there's this like real meeting of minds not necessarily in total agreement but there's a kind of like sort of like almost like a fusion reaction, you know, between all of these people coming together and thinking and sharing thoughts. Yeah. It's a great. Yeah. Thing. I have to tell you the, the, the content, the content was super interesting to me in that respect. Whereas normally I think the content at many conferences is simply background noise. It's like, okay, we have to have a gathering. So I suppose we'll have some panels and breakouts, but really the whole point was just to get everybody here. When I was at your conference, it felt much, much more like everyone who was there was going to be sitting in majority of the sessions all day. And I, and for those that I had to miss, I was almost like I had some legitimate FOMO because I thought, I thought, you know, there might be things. I, I think there were, there were sessions that I wanted to attend that I didn't get to. And I attended more sessions at your conference than I normally ever do when I, when I'm at these shows. So I, I think there was, there was something really valuable in that and. I'm guessing you're trying to carry that through to San Francisco's event. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think, you know, on the point about timing, you know, it, it, it really is a fascinating time. I mean, I mean, there's people who are very optimistic, there are people who are optimistic, but with some skepticism, which is probably what I would put myself, there's people who are totally skeptical about what's happening. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get a mix of everybody there. And of course, meanwhile, so, this, is, this is the reality, is, is that meanwhile, daily life for people involved in legal innovation goes on. You know, you might be working at a very large law firm, but he's not using any LLM type tool or, right. or with an integration into GPT-4 or whatever. There are a ton of things that you're still working on, like knowledge management. You might be working on projects to use no code to build apps that are going to be client facing on the website, for example, or an intranet, but you'll be doing litigation prediction work, perhaps using traditional natural language, <laughs> traditional natural language processing. I mean, that's one of yeah. the great things, isn't it, about technology? You know, here we are in 2023 and instinctively when I said NLP, natural language processing, which was the first blush of legal AI that yeah. became like in 2015, 2016, I said traditional as if, as if we're talking about, you know, ye old English pub, you know, <laughs> quite a, you know, like we're talking about something from the 18th century because tech just, it does move so fast. So yeah, it was going to be, I think yeah, it, it, a lot of analysis of where we are, there's going to be sharing of people saying, well, this is market, you know, despite all the noise, this is actually where we are. And it may be, who knows, in my yeah. case, the interesting things that people are doing, which are not getting a lot of publicity, which don't have anything to do with some of the stuff that's happening now in the press. People might be doing some really, really cool projects that they'll be able to share with us. Well, so I have a question. When you, when you went on sabbatical, did, did you plan to continue like reading and keeping up on, on the industry or were you trying to get like an entire mental break? No, 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 not at all. I mean, it was basically the reason why I took sabbatical was one, I've always taken six months to a year off every five years all throughout my life, sometimes even longer when I was younger to go traveling, to write books, to do something different, get a different headspace. With this, part of what I will be writing about is connected to technology. So, and also, of course, I'm still chairing 
legal innovators event in London in November. So, you know, I, I need to know what's going on. Also, I do find it fascinating. As people will have noticed, I keep jumping onto LinkedIn. I keep jumping onto Twitter and like mentioning things and commenting on things. Because the truth is I can't stop. <laughs> you know, if the intention yeah. was to completely divorce myself from the legal tech world for a year, I've completely failed. <laughs> you know, because I'm, I'm still very much connected to it. And I, it's funny because I feel like, I feel like if 2022 had been mostly a repeat, and, and it feels like, again, because you, you talked about 2016, and if you're talking about sort of watershed moments, I don't think we've had anything over the last six years that looked anything like the release of ChatGPT in terms of what it's done culturally to the conversation. I made a prediction in a webinar in December of 2022. I said, 2023 is going to be the year of AI. I've subsequently changed that to the year of bank runs and AI, but it's going to be the year of AI. That has really been the case. And the way that AI has dominated the conversations on social media is something like we've never seen before. But you have, you have been a, a part of this conversation. As you look at, at 2023 and the quote unquote, the year of AI, does this strike you as a kind of inflection point? And, well, and if it, so, like, what do you think the impact is going to be? It, it could be, but we have, we have to remember we have been here before, right? The, you know, the arrival of the internet, widespread use of the internet was an enormous shift. I mean, again, you know, we have incredibly short memories. I mean, even someone yeah. in their early twenties lived in a world where the internet was still relatively new, at least, well, I suppose they were three or four years old, but so they probably didn't realize, but you know, it's not that long ago. It's not that long ago that the vast majority of us didn't use the internet, except very occasionally, right? Totally transformed the, the field of law, totally transformed it. And yet in many ways, the actual operation of business didn't change. So people had websites, people had intranets, people were sending information, you know, by email and so forth. It totally changed e-discovery. It's, you know, all of these things. The legal tech really changed because of this, but the actual business of law just trundled on. And for me, that's the part that I'm most interested in. I'm, I'm interested in the, the, the bigger macro picture to understand what's going to happen in the macro picture. You have to get down to the micro level, you know, the individual tech companies, the individual directors of innovation who are actually making the changes on the ground. But all of this ultimately is feeding back out into a bigger picture. So when you look at the bigger picture and you say to yourself, well, okay, did the internet change the business of law? If anything, it just made it more productive. Nothing actually really happened. The billable hour carried on. Partners sat at the top of a pyramid. 80% of all the junior lawyers who'd worked like crazy to get into that law firm were eventually thrown out, whether they wanted to or not. You know, life carried on. In-house legal teams slowly got larger. You know, they generally operate like they, they did 20 years ago. Legal ops has come in because when you have such a large group of people, you need that operational capability and that's been a really welcome move. But again, has this radically and absolutely transformed how in-house legal teams work? I think very few people would say that. So what has changed, you know, I do feel that we would, we're building up to some kind of watershed moment to, uh, to come back to your point. But I don't think we're there yeah. yet. And there's, I don't think there's any guarantee that a new version of AI, no matter how powerful it is, 
is necessarily going to do that. I really, really hope it's true. To bolster your point, if I was, if I was being, you know, fairly cynical about it, what, what I would say is the companies that are probably most likely to be disrupted as a result of the LLM revolution are not the law firms, it's the legal tech companies, right? I, I think that, you know, we're sort of very quick and you see with the Wall Street Journal and Goldman Sachs's report about 44% of, of legal tasks being automated. And I've, I've got an entire tweet up on Twitter where I've just been collecting people from the mainstream. So not like the, not the Richard Tromans of the world, not the Zach Abramowitzes of the world who were like in this echo chamber. So about mainstream people who have identified, you know, legal as a massive area for disruption. And they always talk about the lawyers. I think the companies that are probably really in trouble first, they're prone to disruption, are legal technology companies that have built products with one world in mind. And now LLM definitely, you know, OpenAI, ChatGPT, Bard, all of the kind of category everyone talks about generative AI could very much change the world. But to your point, it, it could be that everything in law will continue sort of business as usual. The thing that will change is, am I using a clunky old e-discovery technology or do I have an AI assistant who can just basically do my e-discovery for me? Well, well, exactly. I mean, you know, is it, uh, is this is this moving from a fifty six k modem, you know, dialogue? Do you remember with this, the sounds to super fast broadband? And yeah, it is a it's a revolution in some ways, but equally in other ways, a lot hasn't. We're all sitting at a desktop working on our computers still, right? And that's like there are some things that some things don't change. Yeah, I mean, high-speed broadband allows you to watch a movie on your own, on your iPhone sitting in your house using your local Wi-Fi, which is, we take that for granted, but 20 years ago would have been extraordinary, right? Yeah. Uh, is that the scenario? Is that the macro scenario? So we're going to have this huge revolutionary leap in the power of AI that our day-to-day -day lives will actually stay pretty much the same, and our day-to-day -day legal lives will stay pretty much the same, or, or not. If you were painting the ideal scenario where these LLMs are like the knight in shining armor that are going to save the day and make things better, right? That's a very broad description. How would you, what would you like to see when you think about make things better? I, I've got a version of this, but I'm curious what yours is. Well, what, what, what does better look like? Well, 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 better, better, better doesn't start with technology. I think that's the key point. Better starts with just getting down to the brass tacks of what civilization wants. You know, civilization wants a rules-based system. Therefore, you need lawyers. You know, society doesn't want lawyers in the sense that it wants to have a nice night out and a beer, you know. <laughs> they need them. They need them. Society needs a legal system and therefore they need lawyers. It's in the Bible. Justice, justice shall you seek. It, it, but like there is, there is a fundamental level where no one wants lawyers, but people definitely want to live in a rules-based society and a rules-based society needs lawyers. Exactly. So, so, so to continue that point, so, so you, you've got your lawyers, right? Okay. This is good. We've got people, society has evolved lawyers because it needs them right? you know, in the same way that any species evolves certain characteristics to adapt better to its environment and go through the, the cycle of 
surviving and reproducing and continuing and so forth. So we need lawyers. Absolutely. Beyond that, beyond that, it's just open space. The, the, there is no hard and fast rule for how this legal industry should work or could potentially work with different, you know, different economic systems, different technology feeding in. My view, some agree, some disagree, is that the, the real stumbling block is the fact that since the eighties, probably going back before the focus on selling time has become, you know, initially it became a very good way of making a lot of money. I would argue now that it's, it's past its sell by days, that it's now become a, a, an impediment to the improvement of the legal system. I, I think the, the focus on the billable hour profitability of partners came at key moments in the re-energization of the Western economies. It helped the sort of new approach to sort of free market capitalism to grow, particularly in the, U the US and, you know, the UK, Western Europe. I mean, the, the, the growth of the commercial law firm, you know, was, was kind of symbiotic with everything else that was going on in the broader economy and the focus on the bill of law, PEP. The, the freedom of movement of associates and partners and so forth. All of this made a lot of sense, but I'd argue that it's had its day. What do you think is the best single defense of the billable hour? I, I'll tell you the one that I, that I've always found somewhat persuasive. Yeah. That it's easy. So I've heard easy, but I, the other one that I've heard is that when it comes to law, you sometimes don't necessarily want efficiency. You want the lawyer with the attitude of turn over every single rock, look well, for no. every <laughs> single problem. And, and that is something that like, once you start telling the lawyer, you know, watch how many hours you're billing, that's where things can get tricky. The other defense that I've heard that I, that I can, that I can relate to, and this isn't as much a defense as it is sort of thinking about the reality. More often than not, I was never trying to pad hours as an attorney. The reason that's the case is there, what, there, there was always a massive pressure when I worked as a lawyer to get the client the answer yesterday, five minutes ago. Like that, and, and that led to weird, kind of a weird perverse result, which is that very often you would be in the office till all hours of the night for something that for sure could have waited till the next day. But the culture always was get it done as quickly as possible. So it's true that there is like a pressure to pad hours and, 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 to you I, know, I to, to hit your quotas. I, I don't think law firms are padding hours. Maybe, maybe some very naughty ones are. I don't, I don't believe that. What, well, so I'll, no, I'll give you an example where it's true that there are, that there are hours padded. I had a senior associate who would very often keep me around the office until the early hours of the morning. He wouldn't give me assignments. I was just supposed to be there for coverage if necessary. And that would mean that I was either sitting and like watching a football game on my, cause he wouldn't, I, I wouldn't get work until very, very late. And maybe it was some last minute changes that he would just have me do. So he could say he had me there for a reason. That is padding hours. That's the worst. That was I, professionally. I probably should have reported that at the time. I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't occur to me till years later, like how off that was. You're not really looking to be a whistleblower when, you, no, 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 when you're that junior no, 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 attorney. 
but well, let's just get back to the key point. The, yeah. The, the reason why the billable hour is an impediment is because that fundamentally, what does technology do? It allows you to do things faster to hopefully get the same or better result using less resources to do that. You know, effectively, technology is a crystallization of effort. Right? You know, I need to make a piece of toast. I can stick it under the grill. I can burn my toast. So I increase my risk. I make the chances of getting good output lower. It takes lots of time. It uses lots of energy because it's just a really, really not a very good way of doing things. Get a toaster, the technology changes things enormously for you. And it, this is the thing is that if you're, if you're seeking to sell time, you are disincentivized from investing heavily in technology to change the way that you reach the output that the client wants you to reach. Mm. And that is the fundamental problem. And I don't think that we can, we can get around that. They are, they are mutually exclusive, which is why the vast majority. So if we, if we, if we pulled the billable hour, you think that that would be enough of a friction reduction that you would see mass adoption of LLM based technologies and others for that matter, that. That, I, I don't think improved. it's that simple. Yeah. I mean, this has this. I think it will be organic, and it has to be. I think what it clearly has to be deliberate. You know, this is this is the old analogy of, of trying to change the, the wheel of a car. You know, while you're going 100 miles an hour down the motorway. You know, these global hmm. authors cannot just stop trading for a month while they figure this out and introduce you know fixed fees and bring in all this new technology. You know, it can't do that. It's very, 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 very tricky. It's hard enough for a corporate, you know, in, in-house legal team to shift things and, and they're not billing, you know, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not operating in the same way. The, for a law firm to do it, it could be very, very, very tricky. But one of the first steps I would have thought would be to probably ring fence certain types of work. Probably many of them will have their own ALSP already. You know, that's increasingly common. Yeah. Build that out put that onto a proper fixed fee basis, start pricing work out, and then bring in more and more technology. Get, I would say, figure out the work streams, figure out the processes, figure out the knowledge and the data that you're going to need to do that work, figure out the pricing. The pricing is really key, but <laughs> the law firms have the data to figure this out. Absolutely. They can always go and talk to Sally as well, you know, the standardization organization for classification. Yeah to help them in terms of understanding the work they do and the work they do for various clients. Once that's in place, now you can start bringing in the technology. It's rather like building a factory. So like if you, if you build a factory to make bottles, right, you, you know, you see them on TV, you know, you have all these different machines, you know, they melt the glass, they stretch the glass, they imprint the glass. Right. Like that, right? Then you bring in a power source. So you might think of NLM almost as a power source. You might think of it almost as electricity bringing electricity into the legal production line. Now, because we're not trying to generate money by manual labor and then sending a bill for the amount of time that it took to make that product, we can now produce a lot more. And also, I'm not saying mm. we're going to get the end of lawyers and it's all my article that I wrote this week. Yeah. About, we're nowhere close to anything like that. You know, there'll still be plenty of lawyers. And in fact, most lawyers could then do other work. They could do higher value work. They could, you know, client relationship management. They can get, they could do, go off and do research. They could go off so, and do uh, really more consultative. 
So I'll tell you, and again, this is, this was not your necessarily your prediction. This was like, you know, if we could, if, if all of these forces were to create a better world with that, what would that look like? What I think really could happen. And I've, I've discussed this a little bit and written about it a little bit is not necessarily the billable hour, which I think is still quite entrenched. I often find yeah. it's more entrenched on the side of clients than it is on the side of law firms. I find that anytime law firms want to make yeah. clients, I mean, and this is one of the things, I mean, often people assume that any, any discussion about the billable hour is a criticism of law firm. It's not, not at all. The no, listen, listen, the buying, the buying habits of big companies have, been entr have become entrenched. Exactly. Like they, this is the way, this is the way they're used to doing it. And when you suggest to them something that they're not used to, they think about it for a few minutes and they say, ah, you know, let's just do it the old way. A law firm is a business. Right? It's owned by its equity partners. They have a right to yeah. run their business any way they like, as long as it's lawful. The partners obviously want to make as much money as possible whilst meeting the needs, you know, of their client base. How have they structured that? I'm sure that many partners are open to completely rethinking it. If you, if you could show them. You say, actually, look, if you use more technology and you, you get the infrastructure right and pricing right to use a fixed fee structure, you will actually be more wealthy. You will, and the clients will be happy as well because it'll be simple. Yeah. We'll start a new sort of cultural era in, in the legal market and it's, the, the wastage will, will go down. But that doesn't so what, what, what I, what, mean that the law yeah. firms make less money. They may, I, my, as I said in the article this week, I actually quite seriously believe that if law firms embraced fixed fees and more automation, they would seriously make more money, not less. So uh, the, the prediction that I would make is I think firms that use a leverage model are going to really be in trouble. And that's, that's all of the big firms, that's all firms. but I think yeah. that meaning the, the, there are certain practice groups that are more dependent on it than others, but basically, you know, the most the most lucrative work is always going to, at the moment is work that a partner sells, but that more junior attorneys actually deliver the work, right? What? That, that's where, that's where firms make their, that's where firms make their money. The partners yeah. actually, if you just do the math, they lose the firm money. It's the associates that they're able to staff up. So big M&As, big bankruptcy and insolvency. Massive litigations, anything where you need the army of attorneys. And, and I think that why, model. Why, why do you think so yeah. many over the last 30 years, large commercial law firms in the US and UK have steadily dropped work again and again and again. And it's not always because they can't charge a high rate. So for example, divorce, right? You can probably, there's a yeah. bunch of wealthy people out there that you could probably charge fairly high hourly rates to. But the problem is, is you don't need an army of junior associates, exactly. you need two or three very skilled operators to do it. And for that, and obviously in the UK, you need obviously need a barrister or two to, to argue it out in court. It won't be so. I think, I think we could be, I think we could see a similar thing right now with the global big law firms, which is, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to change the culture at any one of these firms. Oh, yeah. There are more, there are firms like Reed Smith, Baker McKenzie and others that are more, have been more open towards a lot of, a lot of technology and have done great things. But for the most part, let, let's, you know, call it as it is firms on the, on the most part have been very, very conservative in adopting, you know, technology. 
Well, I, I, don't, I, don't I think it's going to be hard to change the rules inside the firm. But what I, what I do think we could see is we could see a lot more lawyers who realize, you know what? I don't need this big firm the way I used to. Why? Because I can't do the, the whole army of attorneys thing is not something I necessarily need anymore because I've got my AI assistants to go out and do that sort of army of attorney work. And I can be a practitioner. And I think the more that we see that we see like M&A workflows become more like how you described, like workflows for like, you know, divorce work. I think that's going to be a major, major threat to the whole the whole model of the big law firm. And I think you'll start to see more of and I, what I would like to see. So there's some there's some bias here in my prediction, but I think this is where the promise of of LLMs and AI has is you could see more lawyers who simply say, I don't need the infrastructure of this big law firm. I don't need their big fancy office because I now work remote. I don't need the army of attorneys because I've got AI. I don't necessarily even need their precedent because now with like very basic tools, I can get perfectly constructed precedents that I can start from. I can use AI for that. So like there's so much where I think you once would have needed the big law firm and now that infrastructure is not necessarily as important. So I think you could start to see a lot of entrepreneurial attorneys either leaving firms or right out of law school starting their own practice. Because, you know, what, what, why not? Well, I, I, that's an interesting thought. And, and it goes back, we were talking earlier about my experiences of how the internet changed the media world and how suddenly anybody could start a magazine, anybody could start a blog. The problem or the challenge and also the opportunity, and also I just generally frame all of this as an opportunity rather than a threat. These, these are opportunities for large firms to do better, to make more money, to become bigger firms in many ways. It's also an opportunity, as you were mentioning, for, for new firms to, to launch. I think the challenge is, as always, is going to be the client buy-in at the brands. It's hard. I mean, you know. Every, you know, if you, if you go onto Twitter, you will see hundreds of new sites, whether they're websites or, or however they're constructed, offering help and information or news or features or commentary on AI, right? Hundreds of them. How many of those are actually going to become a real business? How many of those are going to build a following, a real following? You know, so they become you know, the next BuzzFeed or Vice, which of course, both Vice and BuzzFeed have had are now uh, huge trouble. Yeah. Changes, of course, yeah. so, you know, you know, the change keeps changing. The, there are a lot, particularly in the UK, I've seen a whole bunch of people from big law or UK big law, magic circle, et cetera, break away and big yeah. boutiques. It is tougher because, yeah. you know, you know, let's say you and me, we, we start a law firm together, right? Okay. One person in Israel, one person in the UK, and we're not particularly well-known as lawyers. We've got a good Twitter presence, let's say, and I'm not a lawyer. People should know that. Most people do know that, but you know, let's say theoretically I was. Are large companies going to come to us? Even if we, we, we explain to them, look, we've got all this technology. We can do all this work really fast. We don't need to have this huge army and infrastructure behind us. We can do it for you. There'll be reticence. There'll be reticence because people will be like, well, hold on a minute. This is just like two people and their brand is like two months old. And I'm going to give them yeah. 
a dollar piece of work or even a very, very small piece of work, but a work piece of work that if it goes wrong, damages my billion dollar brand. Yeah. I, I think that is, so the interesting thing there, of course, is that what it does is it makes the area of brand developments really critical for these new firms that may potentially emerge. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I want to make sure again, to give you a chance to talk about legal innovators, California, but first of all, where can people go other than Googling legal innovators, California, which is the easiest they can, where, where can they go to learn more and to sign up? And are there still, is the, can they still sign up right now today? Yeah, absolutely. So it starts in three weeks. It starts on June 7th, runs to June 8th in central San Francisco. If you would like to get a ticket, you can go to, and it's, it is exactly as you would expect. It is www.legalinnovatorscalifornia.com. You can have a look at the sponsors who are going to be there. We've got some amazing companies like LSPs. You can see all the speakers. I mean, tremendous speakers from in-house, legal ops, GCs, specialists in AI, specialists in legal innovation. I mean, it's a tremendous group of people. It really is extraordinary. According to Bing's AI, the conference was founded by Artificial Lawyer, the industry's premier legal tech publication and is organized by Cosmonauts, a recognized leading conference firm. We know we all love Timo, but I, I wanted to make sure it's giving, giving you that credit. Well, Richard, I, I won't be able to make it to the California event this year, although I'm, I'm dying to get back to San Francisco. It's been way too long. Like I said before, I was at the one in London last year and plan to be there again this year. So your events are phenomenal. And you. if you're in the California area, I highly recommend signing up for these events. You will go, you will learn something that you didn't. The sessions are fantastic. And uh, anything I'm missing, Richard? You know, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. And it's an incredible concentration of really smart people. And you know, really, really looking forward to it. And um, hopefully you can join us. Yeah. Richard, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me here. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Zach Abramowitz's Legally Disrupted. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. La, 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 everybody. La, 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 la.